Hey, hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How are you today? Um, I'm very tired, but with very little reason for being tired. Um, <laughs> just general I feel like, life. Well, I think I just haven't been sleeping well, but I haven't left. I also haven't really left my house much over the last few days, so I'm tired with a lot less reason to be than you. I think currently. Yeah, I've travelled far too far in the past couple of days. So I spent eighteen hours travelling from Cyprus to Belfast, which is too much time spent in airports and on planes. That is, um, is so much time. I don't recommend any of it at all. Cyprus was lovely. Mm-hmm. I recommend Cyprus if you like being really, really, really hot all the time. But it's also like heat, but there's ocean all around you, so it's not like... No, it was horrible heat. Is is it horrible heat? Okay, well, it I'm going to take it all back. <laughs> it was a very humid, muggy heat. Mm. And I think... That I am probably about half the size I was when I left because I so I was being a bridesmaid for my sister who got married on mm-hmm. Friday and I was wearing a kind of floaty bridesmaid dress with a lot of boning and corseting going on. So I was corseted in and then it was kind of had silky underskirts mm-hmm. and that combination of things in 30 degree muggy heat on the beach made for some absolutely disgusting amounts of sweat Uh, (laughs) like I have been in saunas and sweated less than I did that day yeah it was unpleasant (laughs) (laughs) but the whole time was pretty much like that because I normally wear like maxi dresses in the heat yeah but the maxi dresses are one of fashion's greatest gifts it is, but that was a bad plan because the maxi dress just stuck to my legs all the time. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. whenever, eventually, like I went to look at, um, we were in Paphos, so we went to the archaeological park in Paphos, which has everything from kind of uh, from second century Roman stuff all the way up to quite late Christian stuff and lots of Byzantine things and Frankish things. And I had to tie my skirt up like a lunatic <laughs> because it was I was so hot. Yeah, it was just deeply, deeply unpleasant. Um, so basically, it's great if you're going to be naked all the time and not move. Mm-hmm. Like if you just want to lie nude and just still, then it's great. Um, I like doing that. I do like <laughs> lying very, very still. As it seemed to be what most people were doing. So my sister got married in like a resort hotel place. It seemed to be like 100% English and Russian people who just were semi-nude in like mini mini bikinis and speedos and just lying very still tanning um Mm -hmm. yeah so it i mean and so it was lovely for that (laughs) but you did not get to do that but i was not doing that no i was wearing a lot of layers (laughs) 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 Uh, so but it was lovely if you ever want to just have a nice lie down and you're not going from belfast then uh, (laughs) then pathos is lovely what are we talking about this week, apart from how swe- how much you've sweated in the last few days? Apart from how much I've sweated, everybody wanted to know. <laughs> uh, this week, we are talking about who was the most powerful person in history. Very big question. It's a very big question. And it came from uh, someone called Mr. Moth, who has now changed their handle to Man on the 100 um, in order to confuse me. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, he initially asked it uh, in a conversation about doing kind of Royal Rumble style face-offs between rulers. 
um, <laughs> which was quite funny. So we decided to basically do this as a Twitter poll, which is the modern version for people who don't watch the wrestling of <laughs> Rumble <laughs> Face Down. I meant that I could run that from the swimming pool. <laughs> which is the ideal way to do hotel. anything. Yeah, if you can which ever was. find a job and it's one that you can run from the swimming pool, <laughs> that is how to live. Yeah. So first off, we needed to define power because I found quite a lot of, obviously I did a lot of Googling about, I found kind of lots of different ways that people had defined powerful. Like lots of people have defined it as basically who has changed the most lives. And so like Jesus always wins. But that's not really fair because that's, I mean, that sort of power that is founded on influence is... yeah. It's a pyramid, isn't it? Because you can find an incredibly influential person, but then they were influenced by someone. So technically that person yes. has more influence because they and get then, to count like, all of, all of you know. Yeah. And lists like that also had things like Gutenberg for inventing the Gutenberg press. And he's just like, mm, I can't really, like, he was just a dude though. He wasn't really powerful, was he? Yeah. Like he couldn't do anything. And then there was a big list by Henry Kissinger, who is evil, obviously. Mm. And he seemed to have made a list that he designed so that somebody could put him in it. (laughs) So that if you were reading it, you would go, ah, yes, Henry Kissinger fits on this list, where he defined power basically as somebody who has a vision and the ability to see that vision through. And so he had Gandhi on his list. Sure. But then he also had the American president since 1945, which doesn't fit his definition because you can't say every single American president had a vision and the ability to put it through. Yeah. Also, it's not like a a powerful person is not the same thing as a powerful position. Yes. And then he had Julius Caesar, which also seemed a bit weird to me because Julius Caesar had like quite, he was constantly fighting for his power and then he got murdered. Mm. He changed the calendar, I guess. But so, yes. So the one that that we went with in the end was the ability to impact people's lives or behaviour while alive, not, repeat not, including influence. (laughs) So the ability to directly impact people's lives or behaviour, either negatively or positively. Mm -hmm. Um, So while they're alive, they can consciously and deliberately or even unconsciously do something and then that impacts people significantly. And what that meant was we ended up with a list of loads and loads of horrible dictators. (laughs) (laughs) Because as it turns out, it's much easier to see power that results results in people dying horribly than when people get a good education 30 years later. (laughs) Yeah. I think Um, also maybe we tend to, that's the way we tend to frame narratives around um, around people. Like it's, I feel like when there have been positive impacts on, on people, it's like tending to be the result of a team of governors or a, yeah. a, an initiative that involved a lot of people and it gets a lot murkier. And despite the fact that the operationally it's the same as having a lot of people genocided, we tend to blame the bad stuff on one figure. Yes. Which I don't yeah. know how fair that is, but it's how, how we sort of do it. It is. I think that when one person gets a huge amount of power located in their hands, they don't very often then decide to do something non-genocide with it. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things that that people do 
that is shitty is the moment you get a bit of power, you become obsessed with trying to keep it or yeah, increase it. or getting it. more, yeah. yeah. Or you just are like, well, I can do anything I want and you go a bit Caligula. Yeah. Bring me that, do this. I want... Yeah. I'm in charge, you can't yeah. stop me. Yeah, I'm going to build a big, massive golden palace on my horse and there's fucking nothing you can do about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... We got 32 people originally, which was eight groups of four, because four is the maximum that you can have in a Twitter poll. (laughs) (laughs) And that was taken from Henry Kissinger's list, because I thought, why not? Um, Mm -hmm. And then kind of various other lists around the internet that I found on like history forums and history magazines and weird list websites and things and Quora where they ask this question over and over and over and over again and get the Mm -hmm. same answer every time. (laughs) And so we end up with 32. So the 32 that we had were... Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Theodore Roosevelt, who is American president. George the Sixth who was the king of England and empress empress emperor of India at when the British empire was at its height so when it was the biggest and was the biggest empire in the entire history of humanity he it's um am i right in that he's the king who was in power when things like the american revolutionary war was happening and or was no, he a bit after that that was the previous 1920 George? is the oh 1920 george Sure. Yeah, so 1920 after the First World War is when it the British Empire had the most amount of land and the most amount of people in it. Right. Um, George III, okay. King George, was um, the American Revolution. And then there so, was George IV, a.k.a. Um, so basically Hugo. the British Empire kind of started and reached its peak under, under George. Uh, it reached its peak under George, yes. Yeah. We will come to the imperial century in a minute mm-hmm. <laughs> when it got we will. and then peter the great was number four in that one so he was one of the czars of russia who kind of modernized russia then group two was genghis khan the first mongol emperor musa of mali i put him in because i wanted someone from africa uh, and he was an the emperor of the malian empire and was also thought to be probably the richest person who ever existed in history because he owned almost all the gold in the world at one point that is an easy way to be the richest <laughs> yeah stalin mm-hmm. obviously charles v of spain who was a holy roman emperor when the holy roman empire was at its strongest and when he had the most control over everything group three was alexander the great everyone knows who alexander the great is he's mm-hmm. great <laughs> one from <laughs> one from Henry Kissinger's thing, which is uh, the president since 1945, which I included because of the nukes, basically. Yeah. Um, But that is potential power, really. Tsar Nicholas I, who was the Tsar of Russia when the Russian Empire was at its height and was Mm -hmm. massive. Quan Long, who was the first emperor to unify China into one country. Mm Mm-hmm. Group four was Napoleon, who doesn't get called the Great, I assume, because he eventually lost to us. <laughs> <laughs> Julius Caesar, Mao Zedong, the chairman Mao of communist China, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who founded and owned Google, which mm-hmm. these were kind of my additions on the basis that I think that they have um, a kind of soft power to... 
Yeah, completely. Because they control our access to the internet, essentially. <laughs> yeah, so it's a form of, like, they have the power to control what people yes. see and read and therefore what people think, kind of. It's kind of the weirdest, fucked up type of power on the list, I think. Yes, and pleasingly, they just took out Don't Be Evil from the Google... Like, you know, imagine making that manifesto. decision. To be yeah, like, I know. We've got this... <laughs> <laughs> There's one we, thing in our manifesto. <laughs> no, we've got the one thing, and everybody knows us for don't be evil. Just going to get rid of it. Because uh, <laughs> that doesn't seem important. Um, but yeah, basically, I mean, Google, like my whole life is in Google. Yeah. Virtually everyone's whole life is in Google. They could technically fuck us all if they wanted to. The um, document we're both reading off right now is in Google. Is in Google, exactly. So I think they have an enormous amount of soft power. Then in group four was Xerxes the Great, the great Persian empire, who at one point ruled 44% of the world's population. That is a hefty amount. <laughs> is, is Xerxes the one from 300? Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the one who won at Thermopylae. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you'd know it from any of the films. <laughs> you wouldn't know much from the films. No. Then Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Al-Mansur, who was the second Abbasid Caliph of the Abbasid Caliphate, which was in, also enormous, and he was a kind of the one that stabilised it. Then Emperor Hirohito of the Japanese Empire. Group six was Marwan ibn Muhammad ibn Marwan, otherwise known as Marwan II, mm-hmm. who was the Umayyad Caliph, who was the ruler who was ruling at when it was its biggest, and then when the Abbasid caliphate broke off from it then ashoka the great who was an indian emperor who conquered almost all of the indian subcontinent and ruled that vladimir putin rules russia and has nukes Mm -hmm. and then hitler being hitler hitler was one that we put on and took back off again and put on and took back off again (laughs) about three times and eventually because on the basis that his territory wasn't massive but what he did with the power that he had was enormous. <laughs> yeah. So we left him on. Group seven was Pope Innocent III, who was the Pope who declared that he had sovereignty over all of the kings and queens of Europe, and therefore they had to do as he told them, which was quite significant. Mm-hmm. Quin Shi Huang, who was the first emperor of the Quin dynasty of China. Rupert Murdoch, who owns about 2,000 TV companies this is another one of my modern editions mm-hmm. tv companies magazines newspapers local newspapers national newspapers and who effectively much in the same way that google does controls the flow of information and how it is presented to a large amount of the western world mm-hmm. um, again a soft power that cunt <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Kublai Khan, who was the son of Genghis Khan and who increased the size of the Mongol Empire to its height and then also founded the Wan Dynasty in China. So he also got to be emperor of China as well as a Mongol Empire, which is quite good. I think uh, he was uh, the grandson of Genghis Khan. Oh, was he grandson? So. Yeah. No, you're right, he was. Finally, Group 8, we have Suleiman the Magnificent, which is the best name of all of them, mm-hmm. who was the Ottoman sultan who kind of pushed the empire to enormous heights and then ruled gloriously. The UN Secretary <laughs> or General... Or magnificently. <laughs> the UN Secretary General, a.k.a. the World Policeman. Mm-hmm. So another position one, but a one where they have a lot of... 
control over weapons. Exactly. And they control, like, you know, peacekeeping forces, and they basically get to, in a soft, powery kind of way, tell everybody what to do. Mm. Like, it, it's a soft power. Um, Maria Theresa, who was a Holy Roman Empress, uh, she was one of the Habsburgs. She was the sovereign of Austria, Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, Transylvania, Mantua, Milan, Lodomeria, Galatia, the Austrian Netherlands, and Parma. The Duchess of Lorraine, the Grand Duchess of Tuscany, and Holy Roman Empress, which is it's too many titles for one person. It's just yeah, like, it is. You don't need you don't need that many. Yeah, she had. She's one of these people who, like Queen Victoria, had like her daughter was the Queen of France, another daughter was the mm-hmm. Queen of Naples, another daughter was the Duchess of Parma. Like she was consist one of those people. And then finally, the Emperor Trajan, who was Emperor of the Roman Empire when it was at its biggest. So he expanded it enormously into the Middle East and brought the most amount of people and territory into it, and then ruled peacefully and happily with terrible haircut for ages. <laughs> I wonder if the terrible haircut helped or hindered him in that. <laughs> uh, I think people were, were quite. I think the terrible haircut said, "If I can wear this hair, like I don't give a fuck about this hair, so you mm-hmm. aren't gonna fuck with me." Basically, yeah, yeah. Like it's fair. This hair is so shit that it suggests <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. there's nothing I won't do. Basically, yeah, that's fair. That makes Which complete was true. sense. Because he was kind of a bastard. So those were our original 32. Then we narrowed that down to one winner from each, uh, which was Augustus, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, uh, Mao Zedong, Queen Victoria, uh, Hitler, uh, Kublai Khan, and Suleiman the Magnificent. And then Mm -hmm. out of those, we pitted them against each other, and our final four were Genghis Khan, Queen Victoria, Mao Zedong, and Suleiman the Magnificent. Right. So which now is, we're going to decide which one of them is the greatest of all. Basically, yes. yes. So we're going to work through who they were, what they did, and decide who had the most power out of all of them and which who can be finally crowned the most powerful of them all. <laughs> like the king of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's decide. Okay. <laughs> um, which of so, these bastards was the biggest bastard at all? Yeah, basically, that does is what it kind of comes down to. Yeah, there were a few that I was surprised didn't get through. I kind of thought Alexander the Great nearly made it. Mm-hmm. Hitler nearly made it, and I'm really glad he didn't. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to talk about Hitler. Everyone knows Hitler. Hitler is also, like, very depressing to discuss precisely yeah. at this moment in history. And I literally just read a book about the Nazis. I don't, like, yeah. I feel like I've got, it was very good. It's called Travellers in the Third Reich. And I don't read very many, like, popular history books because I'm a snob. <laughs> and I, I read n- almost no books about the Nazis because, uh, like, what more is there to say, really? Yeah. And, but this one was really good because it was not really about the Nazis. It was about people who went to Nazi Germany and what they thought of it when they didn't know what was going on, basically just tourists like driving around and what did, what are we seeing? Yeah. Also, I think it makes sense that because um, he, he lost out to Queen Victoria, he which did. kind of makes sense because he was trying to expand and conquer places and essentially he ultimately failed. He didn't. Yes. Like, he succeeded for a few years, managed to kill a fuck ton of people while he was at it. 
but um, he didn't build the sort of far-reaching power that Victoria yeah. had. So, yeah, it makes sense. It does also, make I particularly sense. enjoyed that that particular vote, there were 69 votes in that round. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that seems just perfect. Um, <laughs> but we've got our four. So we have, we'll start with Genghis Khan, shall we, seeing as uh, he's the first on the list. Mm-hmm. So he was born, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, Temujin Borjigin, and it's otherwise known as Chinggis Khan or Genghis Khan, as it's kind of anglicised to be. And he basically created the Mongol Empire mm-hmm. in the 12th century, so between 1162 to 1227. He took his nomadic group of Mongols who had almost nothing and no territory and no land, and then before you knew it, he had 13 and a half million square kilometres of territory. Uh, <laughs> pretty, it's a pretty good um, increase. <laughs> that he ruled through a combination of mass terror and really good bureaucracy. Yeah. What I like about Genghis Khan is that he, he, he got to that from nowhere. His, fa- his father was the chief of one of the nomadic tribe, Mongol tribes. Yeah. And when he died, Genghis Khan's family got abandoned by their tribe. They, so they literally had no one. And he, as he grew up, managed to amass the amount of loyalty and influence that allowed him to then basically rule all of the people. Yeah. Um, he didn't inherit any power. He earned it all himself. He did. He just united everybody under him and kind of consolidated th- through, like, Mongol aristocracy, consolidated them all under himself. And then was like, you know what we should do, lads? Let's go and conquer everywhere else that we can see. <laughs> Like, just everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, and he did so also by going against a lot of Mongol traditions. He was known for promoting people on merit, where most Mongol tribes uh, had a code of family loyalty. Um, And he, whenever they conquered a group of people, for the most part, instead of just taking everything away from them and abandoning them or killing them all, he brought them into his own tribe and integrated them in, which, like... I assume you're talking about the Mongols there, because he's mostly known for killing everybody. For the Mongol tribes, yeah. So he didn't, he, <laughs> he didn't abandon or slaughter his conquered tribes. He 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 yeah. went after them in order to gain their loyalty, um, which I think he did by simply not killing them. Yeah, is what I understand there. So, <laughs> um, so then he ends up with all these previously disparate groups just rocking up after him. Yeah, and then they were incredibly loyal to him. Yeah. The thing that Genghis Khan is mostly known of, like the to consolidate the these nomadic tribes that are kind of a very loose collection but who ruled by each other into one army um and one state essentially is astonishing and then to take that and quite small numbers like not enormous numbers of people and then take on and essentially destroy China and then turn around and then take on and completely take over all of Eurasia. Mm -hmm. And then not just massacre them and leave or like sack and run away, but then put in place an empire that worked. Yeah. Because the two things that Genghis Khan did was he had this brilliant tactic i say brilliant like absolutely horrifying tactic of saying (laughs) 
turning up at cities saying, if you surrender now, then we'll be fine. You'll be okay. And we will leave you be and we will, you know, sack you a bit, but we won't hurt you too badly and we will just integrate you and you'll be okay. But if you don't, we will kill every single person in the city. And then they did it. It was never an empty threat. So they would turn up and their siege warfare was astonishing for a nomadic tribe. And then they would kill everyone. So like one of, in 1221, they rolled up at Merv, which is in Turkmenistan. And because they tried to resist, they took away 400 artisans. So people with skills they wanted Mm -hmm. And then killed every single man, woman, child and like dogs and cats (laughs) and livestock. They killed every single person in the city where then they gave you had quotas to fill. If you were a soldier, you had 400 people that you had to kill during that day. And you just went through and did it and slaughtered and then sent people out to tell other people that that's what they had done. Yeah, because the other thing that they had was as incredibly impressive communication and supply routes across Eurasia, which is called the YAM. They basically used relay stations. So about every 15 to 30 kilometers, they would have a relay station. So one messenger would ride really hard to the relay station, hand over the message. He would Mm -hmm. ride really hard to the next one. He would go the next one. And it meant that a message could travel like 300 kilometers in 24 hours. Sure. Because it wasn't relying on just the one horse and just the one rider. Because it never stopped moving. Yeah. And they had these stations put in and those stations stayed and were functioning and worked and meant that there was constant kind of supply lines working through this the empire so my friend helen rose i was talking to her about this and she declared that as far as she was concerned the mark of a powerful empire was a working postal service (laughs) (laughs) because if you can get a letter from one side to the other without anybody being killed or it being stolen Mm -hmm. then like that shows that you have an enormous amount of control over the people yeah. Uh, whether it's voluntary or whether it's just because they're all dead mm-hmm. or whether it's because they're terrified that they will make you dead, which I think is a reasonably good argument. I like it. Yeah. And th- and that's what Genghis Khan had. He had uh, effectively a postal service that worked. Like he destroyed a load of cities very, very, very quickly, like 1221. They just went city, boom, city, boom, city, boom, across like Eurasia and Turkmenistan and like um, all the way up into like, Iran. Yeah. And yet they managed to have stability behind them. Yeah. And like, I think that's the, that's what gave him his power, really. Not just the fact that he was very, very murdery, but the fact that yeah. he was doing some really good admin as well. He was the, he created the first proper Mongolian code of law. And yep. um, so, so it's the, the business acumen and political acumen, as well as the doing yes. things like murdering someone by pouring molten silver into their head. Um, yeah. Which is, which is a fun one. Oh, but it, it, it is also what ha- claimed potentially that his genocidal nature left an impact for hundreds of years. I saw a claim and I don't know how accurate this claim is, but that the, the his impact on the population of the Iranian plateau, uh, where he killed three quarters of the population. And mm. some people have claimed that it took until the 20th century for that population to rebuild to the same levels that it had before the Mongol Empire, which is very impressive. That's an impressive amount of murder. (laughs) 
It is. It's thought that somewhere between 30 and 80 million people, which is 5% of the world's population at the time, were effectively killed by the, by Genghis Khan. And like the population of China halved, three quarters of the population of the Iranian plateau. Like once, like this is later when they started pushing into the Caucasus, like into Russia and Hungary and Ukraine and stuff when they started, uh, but about half the population there died. Um, but then on top of that, you also had, it wasn't just people being massacred. You, there was like famines as a result of sieges, but also people fleeing. Mm. Because as soon as they, the, they heard that it was coming, people had heard of people fleeing from each city and then they would arrive at another city and they would say, oh my God, Genghis Khan is coming. <laughs> and people would pack up and run as quickly as they could. And like the displacement of people just running from them across yeah. Eurasia was astonishing as well. It's thought, one of the theories is, do you know who Prester John is? I don't. So he was a, a kind of mythical story that was told during the Crusades that, that there was a Christian army on the other side of the Muslim armies, basically. Okay. That was going to come and save Christendom. I was going to sure. save Jerusalem. So Christians would come in from the West and push the Muslim armies. And then Prester John was going to come from the East and he was going to be like the Christian savior. And then together they were going to take Jerusalem. And it's thought that Prester John comes from a, basically an early misunderstanding of Genghis Khan because he was pushing in through the East and absolutely terrifying Muslim populations in Eurasia and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a, a kind of European misunderstanding and they didn't find out until a bit later what the fuck was going on. It's but, a pretty big misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a big misunderstanding. But, you know, they were Christians who were marching about just being Christians and they were like, well, they can only think of two things in this world, goodies and baddies. <laughs> and we're the, obviously the goodies, so he must be another goodie. <laughs> but he was, I don't know, I'm like, the more I've been reading about Genghis Khan, the more I've been impressed by him. Coming from a Roman perspective on how empires work, where... The Romans are freakishly unusual in that they can't keep an emperor for more than 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, like, really weird how often they get murdered. <laughs> but the fact that he had generals who he could trust to be autonomous and could give them armies and send them off. Yeah. And they could... And they would trust him entirely. And the fact that he integrated locals so basically locals that survived were integrated into the empire as administrators because mm -hmm. he was aware that he didn't have the bureaucracy to do it so he took on local bureaucracy yeah and the fact that he could do that and they almost never turned against him was amazing it's um it feels like just a case of genuinely respecting the abilities of others which i feel like is kind of rare in an emperor Yes. Um, I mean, it helps that like whenever someone did rebel, even the finest flicker of an eyelid that suggested that they might be rebelling, he would then destroy their entire city. Yeah. Like the Nishapur in Iran, his son-in-law was killed, whether on purpose or accidentally. And his daughter was like, Daddy, fix it. They killed my <laughs> husband, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> like Veruca assault stamping her foot. So he he sent his army and they eradicated the population. 1,748,000 people dead. Just because yeah, for the, in that's... response of one person. So that's what happens if you fuck with him. Yeah. 
And that's how he maintains his power. But it's an impressive balance of reward and punishment. Yeah, this one hell of a stick and one hell of a carrot going on yeah. with, with old Genghis. Which is, you know, really impressive. It's, it's that kind of thing that, for me, shows personal power. The fact that he could, a slight against his daughter, that he could eradicate a city. It wasn't just yeah the empire's power it was his ability to get that done yeah um and his ability to create this whole empire that yeah that i like about him yeah Yeah. um also there is the classic fact that from the perspective of influence that today 0.5 percent of the global population are thought to be in some way descended from Genghis Khan as a result of tracing a certain type of chromosome. Really? That is that is impressive. Yeah, obviously it is primarily in uh, Asia so yeah. and Eurasia, but 8% of the men in Eurasia carry a particular Y chromosome that is thought to have come from the male line descendants of Genghis Khan. What do you know? Which is amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Imagine yeah. being able to know that you were descended from Genghis Khan. That, that will blow <laughs> my mind. Yeah. Uh, well, about 8% of men in your age would turn up. Yeah. Get 100 men in a room, one of them probably will. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's Genghis Khan, which I think is impressive. Like, just in terms of numbers, in terms of ability, he's incredible. In terms of stability, I think he's incredible. 13.5 million kilometres squared is an amazing amount of people. 100 million people... <laughs> which he killed about 80 million. <laughs> um, just really narrowed that down. But still, like, I think that is... Yeah. He's pretty cool. I like him. Yeah, I like him too. Good work. Good work, Yes. Yeah. So that's him. I feel like we should get, like, I've been... I talk about my love of Rex Factor. I feel like you should give him a score. Oh, I, I don't know how the scoring works on Rex Factor. Rex Factor has... They have categories. So you have battliness, of which Genghis is a 10 by far. Oh, by um, far. Yeah. Then you have scandal as to how much scandal they had. Quite a lot of scandal. I would say giving murdering an entire city as a result of your, one person dying is quite a big scandal. Yeah. But they like sex scandal the most because obviously it's best. Then you have subjectivity as to how much you would like to be a subject of Genghis Khan. I mean, that is very much dependent on his opinion <laughs> of you, I think. <laughs> yeah, or his just his opinion of your area. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have no control over what he's going to think of you. Um, <laughs> then dynasty, so how many children you have, and then uh, how long you last, So, which is a complicated al- algorithm to mm. give your score out of 10. Yeah. But, you know, I'd give him high points, I think. Yeah. For I don't, all of them. I don't think I want to do the mess because mess is terrible, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. But high scores, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Okay, who's second... Next up, we've got Queen Victoria. Okay. So obviously most people know a little bit about already. She's not amused. She is not amused. Yeah, so Victoria, Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, as it was at the time, and the first Empress of India, a title that she gave herself. (laughs) Good work, Vicky. Good work, Vicky. So she... 
ruled over the British Empire when it was very large indeed at 35.5 million kilometres squared, covering 24% of the Earth. I think it's significant also that it's so widespread. Like, she literally was the empress of the country that is furthest from England, as far that it is possible to get from England, belongs to her and to the crown and still does. Yeah. And all the way up to Canada and all the way down to New Zealand Mm -hmm. and right the way around. Yeah, so she had 412 million people under her, which is 23% of the world's population. Oofed. Which is astonishing. (laughs) But the thing with Victoria is that she is not a Genghis Khan or a, a Roman emperor. She's not like an imperial monarch. Right. In that she is a constitutional monarch. She cannot just do what the fuck she likes, basically. <laughs> she is work she has to work in concert with Parliament at all yeah. times. And so with she, the individual parliaments of all the countries that are loyal to the Crown as well. There is a lot of Yes. And she has a certain amount of like ability to so for example, appoint the governor of Australia and appoint the governor of Canada and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But she does have to work with them. She can't just send them a letter and say, this is what we're doing. Yeah. She has to have a long conversation with a lot of people. And early in her reign, she kind of tried to use power in England or in the UK to kind of control Parliament. And she was able to control Parliament much more than any of the monarchs of our... I can say any of the monarchs of our lifetime. The one monarch of our lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Although she has interfered in Parliament once, but the bedchamber crisis of 1839 was like this massive... This is one of those things that doesn't make any sense, like, Mm -hmm. in the modern world. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, the formation of the government in 1839 rested entirely on whether Queen Victoria dismissed some of her ladies of the bedchamber, which is a kind of ceremonial position that you can have in the church, like a lady mm-hmm. in waiting. Yeah. Some of whom were the wives of the conservative leaders' opposition. So, so this is like one of those situations that happens in the British court, right, where important families get their daughters' positions to try and increase yeah. their influence over the queen. Yeah, basically, except here it was just that because they were her, she considered them to be her friends and she was only 20. Mm -hmm. Robert Peel said, I will form a government if you dismiss your ladies. And she said, no. Mm -hmm. And so everything was kind of chaotic for a while. And it's one of those things that's like vaguely preposterous, but... (laughs) Technically meant that there was no government for a little while. And then she decided to change them. But like in terms of power, that was the last, the one and only time really that she overruled parliament. And even then she backed down. Yeah. Um, And then towards the end, like she couldn't, she had no say over who was prime minister anymore. She had to put up with Gladstone, who she hated and thought was terrible. Mm -hmm. And... She was bound by the Constitutional Convention, which is that she had to go along with Parliament at all times. And she could have an opinion and she could have a very strong opinion and she could hope that somebody like Disraeli would 
love her and let her do what she wanted. Like he, she became Empress of India and she wanted the title of being Empress of India after the East India Company was dissolved. Yeah. But what she wanted really was to have the title of Empress of Great Britain, Ireland and India. Right. And they compromised on Empress (laughs) of India. So she had influence. She's also got the grandmother of Europe thing, which is that she had nine children. Almost all of whom And they were married off all over the continent. They were married off across (laughs) the continent. And then she had 42 grandchildren who were all then married off across the continent again. And then she had Mm -hmm. another 87 great-grandchildren who were married off across the continent. Like, once you get down to her grandchildren, you have so many... Virtually every country in Europe, like, except France, um, kind of in, in some way influenced by her that she could ring, send them a telegram and say, Nana here, just want to say, think you should agree with so-and-so. Mm-hmm. So she could drop a line to the Empress of Germany, who was her daughter, and say, would you have a wee chat with your daughter, who is the Queen of Greece? Or... Her son was the Duke of Saxe-Coburg, who was the father of the Queen of Romania. And then another one of her grandchildren was the Queen of Spain. Mm-hmm. And her, another one of her grandchildren was Sarita Alexandra, a.k.a. the one that got horribly murdered. And <laughs> the Princess of Sweden was another one. Like, there's so she just has all of this ability and the will to ring them up and say, do I tell you? Yeah. But she doesn't have the power to force them to do it. Right. That makes I mean, that makes sense. I don't know if this really makes a difference, but it kind of makes a difference to me as well. Like, she didn't put forward a whole lot of initiative in gaining the power that she had. England was already mm. exploring most of the world and conquering it as much of it as they can and forming colonies. They had been doing that for a couple of hundred years by this point. And she, yeah. she stepped she, into that as an existing state, whereas, for example, Gigas Khan just went after it from nothing. And so I think that kind of, to me, that, that suggests changes that... changes it for you. Yeah, that, there's a difference there for me. Yeah. And it, she does... So I said we would mention the Imperial Century. The Imperial Century is 1815 to 1915 when the British Empire just expanded massively. Mm. 10 million square miles were added, mostly under Disraeli, Benjamin Disraeli, who was a massive expansionist. <laughs> um, colo- <laughs> trying to think of a polite way of saying it. Um, really polite about colonialists. They were <laughs> fuckers. Yeah, like from the Cape to Cairo, all the way, like that's when they took such a huge amount of, of Africa and it really took on India. They took India from the East Area Company uh, East Area Company, East, East India, India Company. <laughs> they they had the opium wars with China mm. is under her, but they are parliamentary acts more than they are Queen Victoria acts, if you know what I mean. Yeah, in the like she was interested in relations with France and being Empress, but we I don't I've not read her diaries. She kept a very detailed diaries. She wrote in diary every night um, and liked to write about her feelings about a lot of things, mm-hmm. which is quite fun. <laughs> But I don't think she was writing loads about, like, the conditions of slave ships or what she thought about, Mm. you know, expansion in Egypt or anything like that. 
Yeah. Um, and she certainly wasn't rolling up and having opinions about it anyway. So I I would give her personally, in terms of the consolidation of power in one person and her ability, theoretically, she has the ability under what are called reserve powers. Mm-hmm. So the Constitutional Convention says that she can technically declare war and declare peace. So she wants to declare war on someone. If Queen Elizabeth wants to declare war on someone, then she totally can. But... In terms of the reality of that act, she doesn't really have the ability. Like, no one actually has done that in a very, 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 very long time. Mm. <laughs> and she doesn't, in in terms of the popular opinion and how much that controls the behaviour of the monarch and in ter- how much the government controls the behaviour of the monarch, she doesn't, she has that power theoretically, but it's not something that she can, in practice, use. Yeah. And so I give her low scores, I'm afraid. Yeah, I agree. I think that she is one of the lesser powers. Yeah. Which is a shame because it would be nice if that only woman in the final four was a (laughs) badass who could sweep the others off the table. But I just don't think that she can. No. Which uh, is like a relief, really. Like, I mean, there's a lot wrong with like considering that this is the country that we both live in um i don't really want to live somewhere where someone has that sort of power combined in one like all in one person i don't think that that's yeah particularly safe it is i think there is something slightly comforting though about being able to say if we had been able to say oh everything that was terrible about britain was the result was because one person had so much power and it was a cult of personality mm-hmm. and everybody was coerced into it rather than, oh, yeah, no, just for hundreds of years, we all thought that was OK. Like literally everyone thought that <laughs> yeah. that was a good idea. And we all thought that we were better than everyone else. And that it was entirely within our right to stamp all over the entire rest of the world, genocide everyone who didn't look precisely like us and then just destroy everything that we touched. Uh, yeah. No, we just thought that was... Literally everyone thought that was fine. <laughs> that is a very uh, good point. <laughs> so, which is not comforting at all. It's a very similar thing, I think, to the way that it's comforting for people on on the left to think that Russia somehow intervened in, in Brexit because they yeah. can say, oh, we didn't vote for it really. When the truth uh, is actually just a lot of people are very xenophobic. Yeah, exactly. So I think it would almost be more pleasing (laughs) if we could say, oh, actually, Queen Victoria was a dick and she just wanted to murder everybody. Yeah. Speaking of, number three is Mao Zedong. (laughs) (laughs) He did like murdering people. Yeah, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party from 1943 to 1976. Who I think was unexpectedly complex when I was reading about him. I was like, oh, there's, there's... I feel like I had I had boxed him into a corner that maybe he didn't deserve to be boxed into. Oh really? Oh well, because of the that there are more positives from him than yeah, the completely. Because you just think, oh, like he's a, a terrible autocratic leader of communist China. Millions of people died because of him under his policies, so he's bad. But there is there's you know there's some shades of grey. I think. There are some shades of grey. One of the interesting things, I think, so in terms of his territory, he has 9,676,960 kilometres squared, the whole of China. Mm -hmm. But the population of China increased from 550 million in the 40s to 900 million during his rule. 
Wow. And which is one of the reasons why they, they came up with the bizarre one child <laughs> policy. Um, and the one, child, boom. the one child policy itself is quite astonishing as a show of power. Yeah. To be able to control people's fertility is unbelievable. Like, yeah. To be able to say that and then have the ability to follow it through see that through and actually enforce that yeah is is really quite something <laughs> so the history of china in the 20th century is very complicated and and probably one of the reasons why it increased is because there were so many wars and civil wars and warlords tearing it apart and the occupation by japan and then the second world war and then the civil war before the second world war that was preventing people from having lots of kids to be honest because there was no stability at all Mm. And the one thing that Mao brought was stability because no one would fuck with him. He came to power after a civil war where the Communist Party won and he was made chairman of the Politburo and he was great pals with Stalin. And then the Communist Party developed an administration that infiltrated every single aspect of Chinese life from the way you spoke to the way you thought Mm -hmm. uh, to what you did with your pots and pans to how you got married. And because Chinese communism became so focused on Mao, on on Maoism Mm -hmm. and the cult of personality of the great leader, that he was able to essentially from his bed say during, for example, the Great Leap Forward, which was a five-year plan from 1958, he kind of didn't really understand metallurgy at all, unsurprisingly, (laughs) uh, because why would he? So what you have experts for. He basically put in almost entirely arbitrary steel production targets. And mm-hmm. then in order to force people to meet them, he made them build furnaces in their back garden mm-hmm. and melt down all the metal they owned. So like their pots and their pans and their jewellery and anything that looked like it might have steel in it. And the deforestation as a result and the like, wiping out but people were burning their furniture and their clothes and melting down their parts and pans because he didn't understand that that was not going to make proper steel (laughs) that was just gonna make i don't even know what you would call it just hybrid Uh, (laughs) metal yeah Yeah. it's just not gonna make like i wouldn't why gonna if somebody decided to bring that in here like i could pop it on the bonfire that they're building outside but It's not going to do much good. You're just going to get some kind of crap slag. Like you can't make anything out of it. And what you've done is taken a productive thing and made it into a blob of shit. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) My my incredibly scientific terminology. What I found interesting about Mao is he's such a contradiction in terms because he believed in a revolt of the people and he he believed in a state of constant revolt to question leadership, but at the same time practiced absolute control and didn't allow anyone to question him. It's a very interesting exercise in personal doublethink that is really fascinating. Although I think there are questions over how much he actually believed anything about communism or whether it was that he like there were debates sure with among historians as to how far he believed it in much the same way there's like debates about whether constantine was really a christian sure it's always whether he was a true believer or whether he just saw it as a way to maintain personal power yeah that's i guess always the question and there's no way to really know someone's intent yeah things like the great leap forward which Honestly, it's just got so much weird stuff in it. Like, they, he decided that if you did extra deep ploughing, then your the 
plants would have extra deep roots and therefore they would be bigger. Mm -hmm. But obviously that doesn't work. (laughs) That's not how it works. And all of these kind of weird experiments meant that there were huge famines. Yeah. And the taking away of people from agricultural production and the forcing them to focus on other things like digging irrigation across the country meant that there were huge famines and just millions of people died from that. And then when that finally ended, he got involved in the Cultural Revolution because he decided that he hated all educations and art and anything that wasn't explicitly Maoist, essentially. Yeah, and he he valued, I think, or I don't know if valued is the right word because it feels like the opposite of that. <laughs> but um, he promoted hard labour over education yes. and... Um, a higher respect, for, much higher respect for like work. He, I guess he, like practical workers rather than anything that was the, manual and yeah. required no kind of intellectual thought. So he yeah. valued peasantry to a certain extent. So one of the things that that happened during the Great Cultural Revolution, which was 1966 to 1976, was the deportation of young people from schools and universities to the country to engage in pointless agricultural projects like planting trees. Yeah, and Uh, also cutting down trees. Yes, and sometimes cutting down trees, depending where you are. The beginning (laughs) of the three-body project, Mm -hmm. which is the great Shikshin Lu Chinese sci-fi, begins with a woman being deported to be involved in tree planting and then being denounced during the Cultural Revolution after her father, who is a university professor, is killed in a kind of denunciation where he's Mm. beaten to death by his own students. But as a result of the Cultural Revolution, with the amount of people that were sent to re-education camps or sent to the countryside, it effectively halted education for a decade in China. Only the the most basic education in centralised areas and... In the more rural areas, people just weren't taught anything, and just there was no education that was effective for it for a full decade. Mm. And this is where the Little Red Book, Mao's quotations from Chairman Mao Zedong, mm-hmm. which was published in '64, contains things like a revolution is not a dinner party or writing an essay or painting a picture or doing embroidery. A revolution is insurrection, an act of violence by which one class overthrows another. And Mao's perspective was that there should be constant violence at all times and that anything that wasn't violent was not revolutionary and that revolution should be constant. Yeah. And, you know, it is an effective way to (laughs) maintain your power if there's a constant revolution going on and there's always a constant enemy within. Yeah, and Uh, it's easy to sort of achieve that because you do the thing that he did where landlords and wealthy peasants were killed or deported and their property turned over to the poor. But then by their own nature, those poor then become property owners and so it can start, you can start And then you take away property. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that that brought about was the destruction of historical sites. So there were about 6,000 sites in China which were being protected by the government before 1966 mm. and about 4,000 of them were partially or completely destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. So like the Ming tombs and great temples and all of these kind of great imperial buildings were destroyed because they were yeah. it was con- they were considered to be feudal in some way. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing I think with Mao 
is that his his power is concentrated within his country. It's just yeah. that his country is so enormous. Yes, I was thinking the exact same thing. And there, it was <laughs> like the possibility of it extending further if the sort of idea of global communism had spread further than it did. He, yeah, he never had any power outside of China. Yeah, he had a certain amount of soft power, obviously, because, again, the size of the country. Yeah. And they got nukes. Yeah. <laughs> But the size of, like, almost a billion people is just the size of the country itself means that his power is so enormous. Yeah. And it could have happened... Like, his power is essentially the same as, like, the Khmer Rouge, who did appalling things in Cambodia. Mm. But Cambodia is a much, 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 much smaller country. So the impact Uh, (laughs) of what he did is larger. So the numbers... Yeah, exactly. And China because it was kind of moving towards a globalised world and becoming a globalised world during his rule meant that he had an impact on the rest of the world in a certain way as well, mm. just economically. <laughs> yeah. But, and his, like, he could make a decision and decide whether or not to join the global market, essentially. And he could decide whether to fight or not. And, like, the large part of, for example, the Korean War is that the, the reason that that ended in the weird stalemate of having a, a divided Korea is because China backs North Korea. And yeah. if you fight North Korea, you fight yeah. China. And you can't fight China because China's too huge and China has an enormous amount of like it can throw people at you until the cows come home and it can throw yeah. bombs at you. <laughs> and and um, nowadays its role in the world's economy is such that um, too many countries w- want to avoid being put in the position where they can no longer trade with China. So yes. um, no one's going to... Again, you know, the fact that... Like we didn't really talk about his positives necessarily, but the fact that he was able to take China from a very... A country that was extremely rural and extremely poor... Mm-hmm. And completely divided by war and partially colonised by Japan into, with very much with the help of Soviet Russia, to a country that had, by the 60s and 50s and 60s, the the kind of power it did to shift global, global incidents, global events you know a, a large part of that does rest on the fact that it al- allied uh, through communism with with russia but still it it took it from being a place where people invaded um, yeah. to being a place that you did not fuck with <laughs> yeah that is very very true <laughs> which is and you know also, um he is someone who he didn't inherit any of that he can his father was a farmer a wealthy farmer and he um, just got involved and started writing sort of communist yeah. articles and, and grew from that to obviously got into the military and then managed to pull himself up from there. So, and I think, and again, I think that that's very impressive when, when it's not inherited, when none of your power is inherited. Yes, so do I. The amount um, that you amass over your lifetime, yeah. And the amount that he was able to consolidate on him as an individual. Like, yes. is It, it wasn't his nation it wasn't the party it was Mao yeah um, completely which brings us to another inherited ruler number four is Suleiman the Magnificent the Sultan the tenth Sultan of the Ottoman Empire from 1520 to 1566 ruling over 5.2 million kilometers and somewhere between and this is I think quite broad 15 <laughs> to 25 million people so there's an impressive amount. It's, <laughs> it's an impressive amount. There's a there's a large margin of error. 
Yeah. Which, in there. <laughs> I feel like um, uh, the first thing we've got to talk about, the most the most important thing to talk about when you're discussing Sulem and the Magnificent is his hat. His turban on his Wikipedia page is amazing. It's so Apparently amazing. Apparently that picture is by Titian, or is ascribed to Titian. Mm-hmm. And it is, you could put another person in that turban. <laughs> Maybe another person is in there. And it's not just in the Titian painting, there are a few pictures of him all with this giant magnificent turban i love it so much maybe that's why he was called suleiman the magnificent because his turban was so magnificent yeah it's nothing to do with what he did it's just look look at him would you yeah. look yeah like everyone else's turban is a quarter of the size <laughs> even less i think yeah it's like one um, just just giant giant marshmallow just on his head and it's my favorite it looks like an a big onion um, that they've popped on his oh, head. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. With a bobble on it. Or like a meringue, because it's kind of yes. got this whipping whip going up. It has does it. have a whip. I wouldn't... It looks like it was a pain to wear, to be honest. It, it looks like it would either have to be really, like, a lot of hair clips in there. Yeah. Or like, it's going to be wobbling about. I don't know. It looks uh, yeah, difficult. I think you have to hold your head very still to avoid it sliding one way or the other. Yeah. It is a magnificent turban. And for that, I give him points. So he inherited the throne from his father, cracked his knuckles, uh, and went straight into invading everyone he could see. Yeah. Um, Started with Belgrade, which just fell immediately. Yeah, they were like, ah! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they were expecting anything. He just kind of rolled up and it was like, nobody helped. They went, oh God! (laughs) And then the rest of Europe went, what's happening? (laughs) Everyone freaked right the fuck out. Yeah, and then he just kept going right the way down to Vienna. Yeah, with a little bit of a turn back, he stopped for a moment and went the other way to Rhodes. Um, Why not? Rhodes is lovely. Yeah, sieged it for a few months, and then once he had that under his belt, went back through and just Europe. like yeah, blasted through Europe. Yeah, um, all the way down to Vienna. He did lose Vienna though. Yeah. yeah, he tried. He tried for Vienna a few times, and never quite got there. Yeah, and then he kind of he meandered about in India for a while. I tried to get into India. Um, yeah. Wandered through Persia. Poor old Persia. Persia and Central Europe, like, they just get, they just... They get very invaded. They bang in the middle, and so whenever anyone's coming from either side, they just go straight straight for for them, (laughs) and they just get marched over. Yeah. Um, And they never really have the time to pick themselves, like, they pick themselves up, and then before you know it, there's someone coming from another direction to come and trample all over them again. It's like that, you know, there's a bit in Disney's Hercules where this uh, villager is just complaining about everything that's gone wrong. It's like, first (laughs) first it was the flood, and then it was the earthquake, (laughs) and then the fire... Just one thing after another, and they're all half burnt, half drowned, and exhausted. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. That's, I believe it's the history of Poland. <laughs> uh, yeah. But he, so he, he marched about, he conquered a load of people, he made, built a massive navy. Um, yeah, and as big as the all other Mediterranean countries combined was the size of his navy. Which is, is amazing. Yeah. And then people wouldn't fuck with his navy, which is perfectly fair. Mm-hmm. He also created a law code, which is useful. He does have the power that, for example, Victoria doesn't and and Khan did, which is that he can just make proclamations. He is restricted in that he can't mess with the basic laws of Islam. So He um, does can't mess with Sharia law, no. Yeah, so it, he has to he has to operate in complement to those laws that are enshrined in the in the Quran and that's 
Yes. Little, yeah, so he's a little bit that less free to do whatever he wants than Genghis Khan was, but still wrote a legal code that lasted for 300 years. Yeah, so he went through the previous nine sultans' proclamations and got rid of all the ones that overlapped and got rid of all the ones that were saying, they were contradicting one another, where yeah. one had said, don't do this, and the other one had said, do this, and made sure that none of them contradicted or violated Sharia law and then codified it all. There's something, in my opinion, there's something super charming about someone becoming sultan and then just sitting down and be like, okay, what are all the laws that everyone has made? Let me sort out the mess of paperwork that all the others have left. I'm going to sort out Sort it out into something tidy and practical. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a good way to have a legacy. But also I suspect when you are sultan, certainly when you are emperor in a lot of places, if there's not a decently functioning bureaucracy, which there wasn't in the Ottoman Empire at this time, it was very focused on the sultan and there wasn't like a, an established bureaucracy around the empire, especially mm-hmm. as most of it was being conquered. But he, you, basically everyone comes to you and you have to make a decision. Yeah. And what that means is that if you are a lazy person like me, you decide on the day depending on how you feel. Mm-hmm. But then if you are a non-lazy person like Solomon, then you get realised that people have been asking you the same question 17 times and you're like, why don't we just fucking write this down so that people don't have to ask me anymore? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the only the gonna... way the way that I can understand this is having worked at shared desks. And <laughs> I'm not a tidy or a person. I'm pretty lazy about that stuff. But if I'm in a shared workspace, I get very, very anally retentive about everything. And I <laughs> organize the fuck out of it. And then every time I come on after someone else who's messed with my system... I lose my mind. Yeah, that's basically what he was. He was like, I'm not dealing with these people's ridiculous systems. And also when you've got like, you basically end up with arguments in your court with one person coming forward saying, well, your father, blah, 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 said this, but then your great grandfather, then the other side is saying, oh, yes, but your great grandfather said this. And he's like, oh, <laughs> to be fair, this is the exact kind of situation that would make me sit down and organize the law codes because listening to somebody with the same problem yeah. over and over again we're driving mad but he he does codify it. and then that lasts for 300 years which is nice yes yeah it's very very good very good lawmaking yeah. Solomon he also did loads of building building's good everyone likes building yeah there's an architectural boom after him and also like a general sort of cultural artistic boom he oversaw that well uh, it was under him that Ottoman Empire entered its golden age cultural age yeah Although I quite liked, like, in the one of the things I was reading, I was like, he developed these communities of craftsmen and we've got found 40 societies with 600 members. And I was like, out of 25 million people, <laughs> 600 of them got to be a craftsman in the community. Like, mm, that's not going very far. That doesn't feel like he was really... No, <laughs> that feels although... like this was very strongly focused in his immediate vicinity <laughs> and nowhere else. But... It may have been more localised than it should have been, but what I like about it is you you do your, if you're an artist or a craftsman, you do your apprenticeship, and then um, once you're you're in your field, then you just get quarterly wages, instead of like the stupid gig economy we're in now, where we're all kind of (laughs) having to bust our guts trying to find someone who'll pay us money to do a thing. Give it another 10 years or so and somebody will create a guild of <laughs> content writers for the internet, <laughs> aka a fucking union, and you'll all be all right. Yeah, that'll be great. One day. Yeah. The thing with Solomon, I think, is that the stuff he did was great. Like, you get this cultural development, you get these, 
you get two giant mosques being built uh, in Turkey. Here he restores like the Dome of the Rock and rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem and builds all of these massive things. Everybody knows who he is. He is magnificent. Mm-hmm. And he does codify the law, which is important. And that probably does change a lot of people's lives because, as I know from the Roman Empire, having a law code that works and is consistent makes everybody's life a lot nicer. Yeah. And he didn't brutally massacre people for no good reason. He wrote poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to hear a poem? I definitely do. When people think of wealth and power as the greatest fate, but in this world, a spell of health is the best state. What men call sovereignty is a worldly strife and constant war. Worship of God is the highest throne, the happiness, happiest of all estate. Hmm. Well, that's nice. It is nice. For someone who conquered a lot of people, um, besieged various places and stamped all over Europe and North Africa down to Algeria and was generally quite warry. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a nice thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, he feels like a well-rounded person. Um, I think the thing with this is... So what I said at the beginning is it's easier to see negative power than positive power. Yeah. And I feel like they don't have the visceral, like, oh my God, he eliminated a third of the world's population situation. But I possibly within the empire, his period was one that was relatively peaceful, relatively strong where people could live good lives yeah but then i compare him to trajan who didn't make the cut but who expanded the empire had a glorious period of building built enormous beautiful things made the empire the largest it had ever been introduced social welfare programs like made rome and the roman empire one of them unless you happen to live on the edge of it one of the most peaceful (laughs) kind of lovely places to live and was intimately, we know that he was intimately involved in like the day-to-day of everything. Yeah. Um, And he did that for like three times as many people as Suleiman did. Yeah. And I feel like if we were to head-to-head Trajan and Suleiman, then... Trajan would come out on top. Trajan would would just about take it, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, In part because he was ruling over 56 million people rather than like 25. 25 at at an estimate, maybe only 15. Maybe only 15. There's basically nothing. Yeah. And in comparison to like Mao and his 900 million, Victoria and her 412 million, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Genghis Khan... And his 100 million, like 15 million doesn't really feel like it's a drop in the ocean, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I give him good points for being probably great. But I think in terms of the consolidation of global power, he can't really compare. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Sorry, Solomon. Sorry, Solomon. You are magnificent. magnificent. (laughs) He's the only one who got to be... Like, we got loads of greats, like, in the original list. There's like four or five of them who got to be called great. Mm -hmm. But only one of them got to be magnificent. So I guess now we have to uh, make a call. We have to make a call. It's really between Mao and Genghis Khan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I have, through the process of talking, I've come to a conclusion, Janina. What is your conclusion, Emma? My vote goes to Genghis Khan. My vote does too. Yay! I think it's just, um, obviously Mao had uh, control over a whole lot more people, but he was confined to one country. Um, yes. And Genghis Khan went fucking everywhere. Yes. And 
the his combination of the carrot and the stick and <laughs> and bureaucracy and war and his knowledge of his weaknesses that yeah. meant that he was able to create an empire that genuinely worked by acknowledging where he was weak and then saying i will find someone to fix this yeah um and then having 16 children and having a relatively stable succession as well and even the fact that he started with a bunch of warring tribes and united them not just as a as one country but as an empire he built an empire out of that i think that is that's pretty impressive and if he wanted to he could crack his knuckles and eliminate an entire city yeah just because they upset his daughter yeah and that for me is something pretty special it's pretty decisive i think I think it is. Um, <laughs> so that's our answer, really. Yeah. Uh, our conclusion is that the most powerful person, In where power was the most history. consolidated, was Genghis Khan, yeah. a.k.a. Chinggis Khan. Yeah. What an amazing man. What an amazing I, you know, man. I listened to that entire like 19-hour hardcore history about Genghis Khan. Mm-hmm. Um where he mostly describes massacres for ages, um, <laughs> for approximately 17 of those hours. Um, and I came away going, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But just doing this reading for this, I have now, I now feel like I'm considerably more in awe of him than I was. Yeah, I think this is the thing. It's easy to see the massacres, but there's a lot more going on than that. And it's, that's where it gets super interesting. Yeah, this is partly because Dan Carlin just really loves military history, which mm-hmm. I absolutely do not. No, uh, I'm, I'm not interested. <laughs> and so he's really interested in like how they used horses to march about. Sure, <laughs> but <laughs> but I am yeah, I'm more interested in him as a person. And much as I dislike great man theory, there is I think a certain amount of one person makes a difference, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I might fish out a biography of him and read it now. Um, yeah, I kinda want to see. There was a new one which came out um that had a really good cover and I now can't remember who it was by. There was one called The Man Who Conquered the World, which is oh yeah, that was it. By Frank McLinn. Mm-hmm. Um and I am persuaded by covers as a general rule, so uh, <laughs> it's fair. Yeah. So that's our winner. I feel like I'm gonna. Hopefully, Oliver's gonna put in some like music here because he's good at that. <laughs> yeah. Well done, Genghis Khan. All yeah. you needed to do was consolidate a nomadic series of tribes, conquer the entire world, <laughs> and kill 80 million people. And what you get it's... was to be the winner. <laughs> I hope it was all worth it. <laughs> I hope it was worth it. <laughs> Um, okay, what's our question for next week? So next week's question comes courtesy of Jack Fitzgerald, who is Mr. Fitzgerald on Twitter. And he asks, so much of history is about kings and emperors and shit. Who are some everyday heroes? I think that's a very good... This is purely chronological that we I go through these questions. So this one has worked out perfectly as a foil to talking about... <laughs> just talking about murderers. Yeah. Um, and kings, just talking about emperors... Who everybody's name, like, you know all their names anyway. Yeah. So we're going to talk about everyday heroes and people whose names you maybe don't know and cool stories from the past. Yeah, it'll be good. Yeah. All right. 
Oh, I have to do a correction from our previous episode. I've just remembered. Oh, um, so because we had to do it so quickly, I didn't get to listen to it before we put it out. And I was listening to it walking around, uh, and I, <laughs> I declared that the Romans built the Parthenon. Uh, <laughs> the Parthenon in Rome, they built. Uh, they did not build the Parthenon. They built the Pantheon. <laughs> that is, I think, something that we are all going to have to accept. Where everyone is going to get mixed up over and over again for the rest of all time. The fact that they did this to us, I consider to be a sign of how much of a spectacular set of bastards the Romans were. Just to do, we're really, just going to call it the Pantheon. Really uh, there's quaint. already a thing called the Parthenon. Yeah. <laughs> we're calling it the Pantheon. Yeah, we'll just uh, see which one of us wins. <laughs> yeah, um, and exactly. the Parthenon. The Parthenon won Rome. I hope you're happy. Uh, yeah. It is one of my favourite <laughs> photos from the one time I've been to Rome. Is <laughs> I took a really amateur photo of a sign that just was directions to the Pantheon McDonald's. <laughs> there you go, you see? Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, there's a McDonald's everywhere in Rome. It's great. <laughs> Okay, so if you have a question that you would like to ask us, you can tweet us at, at sexyhistorypod, where we do polls now. <laughs> or you can email us at sexyhistorypod at gmail.com. You can also contact, tweet us individually. I am at j 9 and if, And I am at Nuclear Teeth. And our producer Oliver is at Kiwa. Yes, watching the football right now. Yep. And hopefully is also paying attention. Uh, <laughs> and that's about it. You can leave us... If you send us comments and tell us that you like us, that makes us happy. If you put them on iTunes so other people can see them, then that makes us even happier. Yep. And means that other people can listen to us, which is nice. I think that's about it. I think it is. Yeah. Bye, Tina. Bye, Emma. Bye.